Canadians like to think we're more tolerant, nicer, more welcoming than our American neighbors. The images of racial conflict in the U.S. are prevalent. But when something like that occurs north of the 49th parallel, we're shocked. Should we be? Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. The Freedom Convoy is out of downtown Ottawa, but the three-week occupation is something those residents won't forget. As the collection of truckers made their way across the country, there were rumblings that other groups were using the movement for their own gain. The Confederate and Nazi flags that were seen on the first weekend solidified that view for many. Extremism in Canada has increased 320% over the last five years, according to the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Our unpublished.vote question asked you, do you feel extremism is on the rise in Canada? Yes, no, or unsure? Just over 41% said yes, 56% said no, and 2.5% were unsure. Now, however you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote, and then email your MP to tell them why. Now, joining us to discuss the rise of extremism in Canada, Barbara Perry is a professor in the Faculty of Social Sciences and Humanities at Ontario Tech University. Andrew Crosby, PhD candidate in sociology at Carleton University. And Amarnath Amarasingham is the assistant professor at the School of Religion at Queen's University, as well as a senior fellow with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Uh, Barbara, we'll start off uh, with you. An increase in the activity of extremists uh, when the pandemic started. Why was that? Is it just there too much time on their hands? Well, I mean, it's part of a longer trajectory that really began around 2015, 2016. And there have been different flashpoints, I think, that have really um, mobilized or given new energy to the movement in the last, uh, what is that, seven years, I guess. Um, but the, the pandemic really did provide some key focal areas for them to uh, to target. Uh, one was, of course, you know, drawing on the conspiracy theories and the disinformation about, uh, you know, the origins so we had we saw a lot of anti-Semitism and a lot of anti-Asian sentiment as well. Uh, you know, conspiracy theories saying you know variously that you know Ju the Jewish community was responsible for developing COVID so that they could benefit from the um, from the sale of the vaccine. Uh, Asians, uh, Chinese communities uh, developed it uh, in order to overtake the world. So all of these sorts of of uh, pieces of disinformation really circulated. And um, were both, I think, disseminated and consumed by the the far right, and uh, you know, heightened their uh, their attention to those particular communities. But then, of course, we had uh, you know the the lockdowns and all the other restrictions that also became a target. So that's where we see the anti-statism and the anti-authority um, narratives associated with the far right really come to the fore, and that, of course, culminated in the uh, the convoys uh, and the in the demonstrations and protests that we saw across the country. Uh, Amar, is some of the extremist messaging getting into the, to the mainstream now? Um, I, mean, I think so. I think a lot of um, the conversation that we thought existed on the fringe um, and, and people like, you know, uh, extremism researchers were consuming on platforms like Telegram, uh, BitChute and some of these alternative platforms. Um, they really started to make their way into the mainstream through uh, fairly larger alternative media platforms like Rebel News or Fox News. And once they started picking up some of this 
rhetoric, um, uh, you started, you know, hearing mainstream politicians also pushing some of that stuff. So, you know, Maxime Bernier and, uh, and, and so on. So there is a mechanism, much like we saw in the US with QAnon, where, you know, it starts in kind of the dark corners of the internet on 4chan and 8chan, uh, makes its way into minor influencers through YouTube. And then you had it, then you had Donald Trump asked about it on the debate stage, right? And so um, things, things that start sometimes um, in, in these kind of minor platforms on online or fringe platforms online. Uh, now we have an alternative media sphere, which has a, a, a pretty good track record of pushing that stuff into the mainstream when, um, when, when they want to. It, you know, when you just looking back at the, the rebel in, in the Fox news, when they picked up on, on the trucker, it seemed to be, you know, more concerned about, you know, Canada being becoming a communist country or, you know, under the thumb of Trudeau and, and all that. And, and really that, didn't seem to be what the message was from the truckers at the beginning. They seem to have co-opted a message like that, did they not? There's, there's, there's no real one message that came out of the trucker convoy. I mean, right from the very beginning, the memorandum of understanding was calling for the dissolution of the Canadian government and, and, and so on. And so, um, it was always conspiratorial. It was always anti-government or anti-Trudeau government at the very least. And, um, uh, you know, and then you had a mixture of different commentary in there, which is inspired by QAnon and the three percenters and, and other uh, militant movements as well. And so it, part of the reason I think it kind of stalled and fizzled um, over time is because their messaging wasn't one thing. They weren't necessarily calling for one thing, um, in addition to the fact that they were carrying, you know, hang Trudeau signs uh, while they were doing it, uh, kind of makes it difficult for Trudeau to come talk to you. Uh, and so um, I think I think the messaging was always quite eclectic uh, from the very beginning, which, as we know from previous social movements, I mean, that's a good way to make sure that you don't really um, gain any mainstream, positive mainstream attention. Uh, Andrew, it, it seems when it comes to the extremists and, and, and the far right, immigration seems to be spurring them, spurring them on the most, is it not? Yeah, yes, for sure. I think that part of the trajectory that, that Barb identified with uh, the rise of right-wing extremism and the kind of increase that we see along with statistics and hate crimes, for example, um, can be taken within kind of broader context, uh, including within the war on terror, uh, Islamophobia um, at large is spreading in the in the Western world and in Canada. And with kind of some of the fallout of the war on terrorism and increase in uh, international migration and refugees, um, I think we've seen a real proliferation of kind of far right mobilizations um, uh, you know, against against refugee populations, against uh, kind of irregular uh, border crossings, for example, um, and in around this this kind of other trend in uh, in far right um, activity around you know kind of preserving the nation, preserving Canada. Um, so yeah, I think that um, immigration has been one of the kind of the drivers of of this, this types of mobilizations. Barbara, we've heard we hear right wing. Extremism. We hear left-wing extremism. Uh, are are they basically the same thing, or are they two different approaches? 
Well, I mean, there, there are two ends of a political spectrum. And we think about the, the far left as being, you know, uh, progressive in orientation uh, and, uh, you know, committed to social justice initiatives, that sort of thing, often pushing back against their counterparts uh, on the, the far right. Um, so, you know, groups like or, or movements like uh, Antifa, for example, wouldn't exist. Anti-fascist movement wouldn't exist without the fascists who are on the far right, which tends to be much more conservative and often reactionary. Uh, in orientation and pushing back against, um, you know, the rights advances and the, uh, the the move toward inclusivity, whether that's in terms of, of immigration policy or in terms of, uh, you know, human rights or civil rights uh, policies. So they really are uh, typically, you know, sort of at other ends of the spectrum. Doesn't mean that they don't necessarily have points of convergence. So there is often, uh, you know, an anti-authority element on, on both ends, uh, you know, reactions against, uh, you know, an intrusive state, for example, uh, or one of the things that uh, that we've been looking at in a study we're just finishing on uh, anti-Semitism is that, in fact, there's also anti-Semitism that comes from uh, the left and the right. So um, uh, interesting that there are those points of convergence, but many more points of, of converge, uh, uh, divergence, rather. Uh, Amara, I, I'm wondering when it when it comes to the extremists, what, what fuels their movement? What fuels them? Is it anger? Is it money? What? Why are they just you know the way they are? Um, I mean, many things. I think part of it is this kind of broad uh, grievance, and it depends what extremist group you're talking about. And so, if, if we're talking about the convoy, which I, I've you know I've largely come to see as a kind of right wing populist movement or a populist movement in general, um, they're driven by popular sentiments, right? And so the elite is evil. Uh, the, our, our kind of institutions of government, like the media and public health officials, uh, politicians are have sinister motives behind what they're doing. Uh, no, nothing is what you see. Um, and they're speak, they're, they're, they purport to kind of speak for, quote unquote, the people, right? The, the, the kind of true engines of the Canadian economy, the true, the true Canadians, um, and and so they're seen as kind of representatives of those true Canadians, and and so I think that that's largely what's driving uh, the convoy and, and similar movements like that. Because after four years or three years of the pandemic, um, having lost a lot of their small businesses, um, a few of them said, you know, they have friends and family who've committed suicide, um, and so there there was a general. Uh, I would say genuine um, grievance and kind of exhaustion with the pandemic that that uh, is why this message resonated when it did, right? And 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 why it kind of grew to the extent that it did. Um, it was absolutely organized by um, right wing elements in the country, like Pat King and uh, Jeremy McKenzie and company, who for a long time have been, you know, you, you were asking about immigration earlier. I mean, they for a long time have been going on about. Uh, white displacement and white genocide and great replacement theories and and, and things like that. Um, basically, since I would say the Syrian uh, conflict and the Syrian migration uh, into Canada and, and parts of Europe, and so that they've um, they've been part of that kind of right wing milieu for a long time. But this time, what they said actually resonated a little bit more because there was already this kind of. Um, nationwide uh, exhaustion with the pandemic and the lockdowns. Um, and so um, they were able to kind of, you know, tap into th th those kinds of sentiments. Uh, Andrew, uh, populism is something uh, Amar brought up, and it's something we've been hearing quite a bit about, let's say, the last few years in terms of politics. Uh, is it the, the same as extremism? And if not, what what is or what are the differences between populism and extremism? 
Yeah, um, I think, yeah, I think Amar is absolutely right. Um, with, uh, you know, we have to kind of look at the leadership, the so-called leaders, and th those have been identified as spokespeople of this movement. Um, and I think kind of where their uh, political allegiances lie and their ideologies lie. Um, so I, I would... I would um, kind of separate that out a bit. I think that uh, these types of actors have kind of capitalized on um, kind of rising sentiment um, and fatigue associated with uh, the pandemic and and restrictions and vaccines and lockdowns and, and items like that. Um, so I think that while there is this kind of sentiment that we could associate with right-wing politics and, and even far-right politics, um, and this kind of distaste and disdain for 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 you know what's viewed as elites kind of dictating um, kind of uh, limitations on freedom or whatnot. Um, but I think that we really have to see who's kind of driving this movement and even make comparisons with the you know the the 2019 United We Roll convoy and um, and how that didn't kind of latch on to the public and, and was uh, va as vast as this uh, so-called freedom convoy. Um, so I would just point toward that. Uh, Barbara, uh, police and military seem to be to drawn to the, you know, some of the extremist movements. Are they being targeted or, or are they just a receptive audience? Well, I think just like the the movement uh, exploits other elements of society and and sort of um, brings them into their fold as they see fit in terms of uh, you know what they can do, what advantage uh, there is there. I think that's the case with the military and law enforcement personnel as well. Um, you know, we and I should say it actually goes both ways because we think about groups like Lamut, for example, uh, you know, a fairly large um, group out of Quebec that was founded by two former military personnel. So. They were looking for, you know, some sort of structure, some sort of, of entity um, that mirrored what they were accustomed to in the military. So uh, that was something, I mean, they were drawn to the movement, but we're also seeing uh, very concentrated efforts to recruit uh, folks from military and law enforcement because of the skills and the capacities that they are thought to bring into the movement in terms of um, training, in terms of leadership, in terms of, I think, even, you know, sort of lending some credibility, if you will, uh, to the movement. They see them as, you know, because they were an arm of the state, uh, therefore their their presence within the movement, um, you know, is, is significant and says something about the validity uh, of their claims as, as they would see it. So um, yeah, absolutely. They've been targeted, but there's also, I mean, we see a number of um, platforms, social media platforms um, from among law enforcement and uh, military personnel that also mimic some of these ideologies, some of these kinds of narratives. So I think that there is some um, some sympathy, uh, if you will, out there amongst elements, some elements uh, of those two professions that make them more vulnerable uh, and that bring them to the movement without necessarily having to be recruited. And and what concern does that you know bring to you when you've got you know police and military either seeming to accept the, the message or, or at least being targeted? Well, I think there are a whole uh, array of, of concerns there. I think one for many, it, it actually um, contributes to this broader, you know, uh, sense of distrust 
uh, of law enforcement. I and mean, we saw that during the convoy so blatant, so obviously, uh, where uh, Indigenous and, and, uh, and Black communities in particular were very critical of the way that the convoy was or was not managed uh, or resisted by law enforcement. So they see that as part of the double standard. So it reinforces that. Uh, I think it also, um, you know, sort of... Uh, um, has the, the potential uh, for, you know, an accelerated risk, uh, an elevated risk, because they do come with expertise uh, in weaponry in, uh, in particular, uh, as we saw with Patrick Matthews with, um, you know, expertise in, uh, in um, explosives. Uh, are those the kinds of people that we want with these kinds of fringe narratives? I mean, I talk about the Holy Trinity, right? They're heavily armed very often, folks in, in these, uh, in, the, in the far right, groups and some of those uh, personnel who come to them. Uh, they're trained to know how to use them strategically as well as in practical terms. And then you add in these uh, very dangerous narratives, whether it's xenophobia, anti-immigrant, or anti-status. And we certainly saw that at Coates. Uh, Coots, sorry, uh, when we saw the stash of weapons that was uh, seized from uh, Diagonal, for example. I have just quickly. Um, sure. What, I mean, what, what, what's interesting here as well, I mean, if you, you know, I spent a lot of time, unfortunately, watching uh, a lot of the live streams from these protests. And one of the things that was clear to me was this kind of popular sentiment, right, is because they believed truly that the police, once kind of woken up to this, were going to be on their side, right? They were going to, um, the police were going to be on their side against the politicians, against all this misinformation coming from the mainstream media and so on. And so there, there was a, there was a genuine shock, um, especially once police started moving in in Ottawa, that this was even happening. Right? They that they couldn't they couldn't believe that they themselves were somehow uh, the object of law enforcement attention in this way. It was just like mind blowing to them. Um, and and so I think that came not only from kind of the white privilege aspect of it, but also the kind of populist sentiment is that once we've woken up Canadian society to this, the police and the military are going to help us to kind of change course, right? And when that didn't happen, um, I remember watching these live streams where people were literally yelling at the police, you know, we love you, we support you, and and uh, how could you do this to us? And it was just um, this kind of disbelief that 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 the that the, the police who, uh, you know, they, was, they supported were actually turning on them in this way. I, I wonder, Amar, is right-wing extreme, right-wing extremism the same as terrorism? Um, I mean, extremism is not the same as terrorism. So extremism um, is is uh, extremism of any of any kind is largely a kind of um, us versus them framework. Where I mean, J.M. Berger I think um, wrote a book called Extremism, which has the best definition I've seen so far, which is the idea that my in-group survival is very much tied to me taking an aggressive, sometimes violent stance against the outgroup, right? So this idea that I'm, my people are embattled, my people are in danger, and therefore I have to do something uh, to kind of protect my in-group against some sort of threatening outgroup. Um, so once you get to that sort of mindset, you're kind of in the extremism space. That doesn't mean you're going to get up out of your seat and actually launch an attack or blow up something, um, but you are kind of in extremist kind of thinking, right? This mm -hmm. this kind of stark uh, us versus them thinking that your, your in-group is in danger somehow. Um, with the convoy, um, it was interesting in that sense because for them, it wasn't necessarily, they didn't frame it at least uh, aside from some of the organizers or around these um, racial dynamics or anything like that. It was more so 
us true Canadians uh, are going to wake up a sleeping masses that has had the wolf pulled over their eyes about the true nature of the vaccine, the true nature of the the virus, um, and all of these things, right? And and so uh, there there was. Um, the, the us versus them was more like the true Canadians versus the sinister elitist cabal that's really, um, um, you know, trying to trying to keep keep the majority of Canadians asleep. <laughs> and so it was framed. It was framed in a in, in an interesting dynamic, which is again um, part and parcel of populist thinking. Uh, Andrew uh, labeling these groups as terrorist organizations, as the government did with the Proud Boys, uh, what could go wrong with that? Yeah, it's a good question, and, and, uh, and different groups and people have raised concern about uh, the kind of terror watch list and these types of labels. I think it speaks to also how national security and policing institutions um, kind of categorize and and track, uh, uh, you know, what what we've identified here is right wing extremism and left wing extremism, and and oftentimes conflating them when we kind of look at some of their internal reports, we can see how. Um, you know, what they now lump in is ideologically motivated violent extremism, how they kind of conflate far right and what we, we call far left. And a, a point that I just like to make on that is, you know, when we talk about right wing extremism, we're talking about violent movements, you know, launching attacks, killing people, using violence. And we're talking about the far left uh, that may be associated with, you know, environmental movements, for example, um, or ultra globalization movements or black bloc types of things. These are usually um, targeting property, uh, uh, properties, property destruction, civil disobedience, stuff like that. So I think it's important to make that distinction um, and be, be wary of when uh, the government places groups on watch lists as well. Uh, Barbara, Andrew brought this up, uh, religious versus ideological views. And, and it seems when it comes to extremism, it's, it's shifting from one to the other, is it not? Well, I think in terms of the, the recognition, we're seeing a growing awareness of uh, right-wing extremism or ideologically motivated as opposed to religiously motivated extremism. Uh, I think in the Canadian context, uh, even the, the risk, the threat, has typically been from uh, far right, from again, ideologically motivated, not religiously motivated. So in our first uh, study of the far right movement in Canada, we identified well over a hundred incidents um, between 1980 and about 2014 of violence associated with the right wing extremists. Um, and that's at you know same time, the same period of time covers that period of time when there was so much focus on uh, Islamist inspired extremism. Yet during that period of time, we we found um, you know no more than ten incidents of uh, Islamist inspired extremism. So uh, I think the 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 threat has not changed. Uh, I think our, our the way we've defined it uh, has changed. And I think that our attention, sort of the what's on the radar now has shifted subtly. Um, so that, you know, from 2000, from the events of, uh, of 9-11 onwards, it's been, the focus has been on uh, Islamist inspired extremism, um, some Tamil uh, extremism. If you look at the, go back to the, the um, terrorist list, for example, um, it's only been really in the last three or four years that law enforcement and intelligence uh, and, you know, federal agencies have really started to pay attention to the far right. They could hardly help but given that we've had, you know, over 24 homicides in mass murders alone associated with the far right. Uh, Amar, when when you look at uh, you know right wing extremism, it, it just seems the movement wants to disrupt society. 
uh, for, for whatever reason. What does it get out of the chaos? Um, I mean, a lot of, uh, especially these days, a lot of right-wing extremist groups also um, adopt what's known as kind of accelerationist thinking, right? And so um, that basically means we, the, the kind of time for politics is over, the time for kind of organic change in society is over. We basically have to uh, kind of etch-a-sketch society, uh, erase everything and start from scratch, right? And so this kind of, um, and, and so they really enjoy groups like uh, Order of the Nine Angles, Adam Waffen Division, The Base, um, the later two, uh, the latter two kind of listed terrorist entities in Canada as well, um, want to kind of push the existing divisions in society to their extremes, right? And so whether it's left versus right, whether it's uh, white versus ethnic minorities, whatever polarized conversation we're having in Canada, they want to accelerate uh, or push those to the breaking point. And so um, that might mean, you know, uh, cheering on violence, cheering on things like school shootings, cheering on, uh, especially in the U.S., you have a lot of um, uh, gun-related conversations around uh, the very debate about the Second Amendment is already polarized. And, and so finding those kind of cleavages in society and pushing them to their breaking point, right? And so these, or a lot of these movements, accelerationist movements have that as a stated goal, right? They want to kind of collapse society and, and uh, see what comes next, or which is largely a white ethno state of some sort. Um, so not all, I wouldn't say not all uh, far-right groups are accelerationists, but um, all accelerationist groups are far-right. <laughs> and and, um, uh, and and so th there's a kind of particular strand of right-wing extremist groups, which are now, I would say, quite dangerous because they are kind of pushing sometimes infiltration tactics in other groups, right? And so um, they're pushing, uh, uh, you know, go into the incel community, for example, online, or go into Antifa groups online, um, which are kind of ideologically disparate, go in, find the vulnerable kids who are on the verge of violence and try to push them over, right? And so kind of very active, uh, purposeful uh, infiltration tactics are also going on uh, from, from accelerationist groups, which is quite worrying. Uh, Andrew, um, and, and Amara touched a bit on it, who, who do you think is the most susceptible to the message from extremists? Well, I think the what the so-called freedom convoy is, has shown that there's there's probably a larger segment of the population that's susceptible than we would have liked to believe. I don't. I'm not convinced that everyone that's participated uh, in the demonstrations in Ottawa and elsewhere, you know, waving Canadian and Quebec flags and whatnot, um, are susceptible. But there seems to be um, uh, an acceptance that. There's elements of this groups that are pushing this this types of message. So they, I think, they found a real home um, in this type of in this type of mobilization. Um, so, you know, I think they are looking for vulnerable people, but they're also looking for disaffected, um, kind of regular, uh, fed up um, uh, Canadians. But I think it's it, types of Canadians that are, are already leaning towards. Um, a certain political bent and, and come into it with a certain set of, uh, um, of circumstances and thoughts already. You know, Andrew, it, it, that sounds like something we might have heard about 10 years ago when we used to hear about uh, Canadian kids going over to join ISIS and 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 go to fight in, in Syria. Um, Barbara, I'm wondering, in, in terms of the you know, right-wing ideology and, and right-wing extremism, how do you counter it? 
well, that's you've asked the easy question now, haven't you? Um, I, I, I mean, I my response to that is always, you know, there's no silver bullet. There's no one way uh, to pursue this. That we really need to engage in multi-sectoral approaches uh, and, uh, and approaches from from um, different levels of society. So obviously, uh, you know, the the government has a role to play here. You know, enforcing the legislation we have before we think about new legislation. Uh, but I also think that the the government, federal and, and provincial, even municipal has have important roles to play in supporting uh, civil society organizations who are working whether it's at the national level or at the local level which is often more important right to address the concerns and the, the grievances that we've referred to here um, in in the most immediate way possible so um, you know supporting those civil society organizations who are developing you know, counter narrative programs who are uh, developing uh, anti, you know, uh, safe gaming programs, for example, or digital, critical digital literacy programs. Uh, I think that that is uh, is crucially important as well. And then, of course, the third sector, um, you know, the the private sector, and especially um, the big tech companies, uh, social media companies. You know, they we need to continue to push there. Um, they have been dragging their their feet with with dire consequences and deadly uh, consequences as well. So we need to, to uh, bring more pressure to bear uh, as a public, as users, as consumers uh, of what they have, what they're selling, um, but also, uh, you know, from, uh, again, from a regulatory perspective. Um, so again, multiple layers working uh, congruently. Well, folks, uh, a great discussion, uh, and I want to thank you for, for joining us today. Our guests on Unpublished TV, Barbara Perry, professor in the Faculty of Social Science and Humanities at Ontario Tech University, Andrew Crosby, PhD candidate in sociology at Carleton University, and Amarnath Amarasingham, assistant professor at the School of Religion at Queen's University, as well as senior fellow with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Coming up on the podcast on Friday the latest on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the response from the West. Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.